So, for those of you visiting, I'll catch you up. We're almost done with the Old Testament, so give me about two minutes to catch up, tell you where we've been. Long story short, Solomon became king of Israel, and right after him, the kingdom divided into two separate countries. The kingdom in the north was called Israel, and the kingdom in the south was called Judah. Two separate kingdoms, two separate dynasties, separate economies, separate religion, separate accents, everything was different. The kingdom in the north immediately plummeted into sin and idolatry. The kingdom in the south, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But long story short, they both degraded tremendously until God was forced to judge them. And I say forced because he kept sending prophet after prophet to warn them to turn from their wicked ways, but they refused. And that's pretty much what most of the Old Testament is about right there. And we've been looking at the books and gathering some lessons from what God did to and with ancient Israel. So the Assyrians came in and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, 721 B.C. And God said, Judah, learn, or the same is going to happen to you. But Judah straightened out a little, but not for long. And so the Assyrians were replaced by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians came in and destroyed Judah. But it happened in three phases. They came in and first, and, and they surrounded Judah in 605 B.C. and said, pay taxes, submit to us, and we'll let you live. And Judah said, you got it. And then they rebelled. So Nebuchadnezzar came back, 597 B.C., and said, don't make us come back again. Three strikes and you're out. Pay your taxes, don't rebel, and we'll let you live. Judah said, you got it. And then we rebelled again. So in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came in, destroyed Judah, destroyed the temple, and dispersed the remaining majority of the Jewish population. From 605 to when we came back was 70 years. And God sent Ezra and Nehemiah to encourage the people and to start rebuilding the temple. And they did. But because of political and spiritual problems, they stopped. And they stopped for about 15 years. And God decided to send two more prophets to get them going again, Haggai and Zechariah. So today we're going to look at Haggai. Over the next couple of months, Zechariah, and then we'll finish with Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and then we go into the New Testament. And I'd like to hear from you. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Which one do you want me to teach from? So if you have a preference, write it on a slip and drop it in the collection box, and I will definitely consider your suggestions, because I haven't decided yet. I've pretty much decided it's not going to be Mark. But if 30 of you say Mark, okay, it'll be Mark. But I'm not thinking Mark. Other than that, I'm not sure. I'm kind of leaning Luke right now. But whatever. Let me, let me have some of your feedback. So there we are on our chart of the prophets. We're coming towards the very end. We've got Haggai. Oh, by the way, time period about 525 B.C. Now, I, that probably doesn't mean much to you. But that is the golden age of Greece. So... Israel has had its golden age, declined, and is coming back again when Greece has its golden age. Our golden age was like 1,000 B.C. under David and Solomon. Besides just helping to anchor this in world history for you, there's some weirdness that goes on out there. I've heard this more than once. Oh, the Bible just reproduces the myths of the ancients. Like the resurrection story, oh, they stole that from the Greek story of Adonis or something. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. 
First of all, the Bible doesn't steal anything from anybody. If anybody's going to steal, they're going to take from the Bible and corrupt it, not vice versa. And secondly, the Jewish people are a lot older than the Greek people. Our culture and heritage written down is more ancient. So you can't say we stole from them. If anything, you'd have to say they stole from us. So I want to just, just give you a little perspective that you won't often hear from the secular world. All right, so we're going to get into the, the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verse 2. Here's what it says. The Lord Almighty said to Haggai, These people say that this is not the right time to rebuild the temple. The Lord then gave this message to the people through the prophet Haggai. My people, why should you be living in well-built houses while my temple lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have planted much grain, but have harvested very little. You have food to eat, but not enough to make you full. You've wine to drink, but not enough to get drunk on. You have clothing, but not enough to keep you warm. And workers cannot earn enough to live on. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Their economy was doing fine, and yet they didn't have enough. Sound familiar? We are the richest nation that the world has ever seen, and we're on the cusp of financial collapse. That makes no sense whatsoever. We are wealthy. I think the message to the ancient Israelites is extremely applicable to us today. Consider your ways. Why is it we have so much and yet have so little? Something is wrong. God told the children of Israel through the prophet Haggai, since they did not honor him, specifically financially in the rebuilding of the temple, they were going to have financial problems. They did. And so I think drawing a parallel to today is not that hard to do. We honor God with our finances. We follow biblical wisdom with our finances. We do fine. But if we don't honor God with our finances and don't follow biblical principles with finances, cusp of financial ruin. So, obviously, this got me thinking about finances. So I want to share with you an overview of what the Bible says about godly way to handle money. Obviously, I'm not going to hit everything that the Bible says, but it's a good overview. Get us thinking in the right direction. And I come up with seven biblical principles on dealing with money. So for those of you who take notes, here's number one. Biblical principle number one on how to deal with money. Put God first. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says this. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. There's so much stated in here. It says, give God first, and you'll end up having lots more. Which is counterintuitive, don't you think? Math says, keep more, have more. Give more, have less. Bible says, honor God, give more, have more. And we'll look at that principle in, in a couple moments. But what I wanted to point out with you was the first fruits. They were farmers. They, were, they had crops. And when the crop came up, the first thing you'd want to do is throw it in your wagon, take it to market, and sell it. Plus, eat some. But God said, no, give the first fruits to him. So they would take it to the temple or turn it into money and bring the money to the priests. 
Why? I don't know. But if we truly believe God gives us all things, and we truly honor God, it makes sense that we'd give to him first. Silly illustration, but I think you'll be able to appreciate it. In most houses, mom cooks the dinner, and then she feeds the kids first. Why does she do that? Why doesn't she eat first? She cooked it. Well, she feeds the kids because they're her baby. She loves them. She's cooking for them more than anything. And so she doesn't have to debate with the kids. I'm first! She lets them go first. In fact, gives them seconds before she gets seconds. Because she loves the kids. Well, if we love God, we shouldn't be debating about whether we give God first. It would be the natural thing to do if we love God. So in my family, what we do when the money comes in, we pay all our bills, but first we pay God. We don't pay God, of course. We honor God. We write out our check for our tithe, and we ship it off. Then we pay the rest of our bills. Because if we did it backwards, we'd never get to the tithe. We wouldn't have enough money. And we've decided in our family that we will not short God. God will come first. If we have to short, we'll turn off the cable, we'll turn off the phone, we'll let the air conditioner run hotter. But we're not going to short God. That's our way of applying this verse, by honoring God with our first fruits. Not only did God get the first of the crops, he got the best, Exodus 22, uh, 23, 19. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. So they would farm their first harvest, and then they'd pick out the best 10%. And bring that to God. The best of the best. I don't know how to do that with ours. Because to us it's not crops, it's cash. How do you give God the best cash? I don't know. Maybe you can come up with some way in your life of doing the best in addition to the first. If you've got a brilliant idea, share it with me. Maybe I can preach it next time. I'm talking money. But for us, biblical principle number one. Put God first. They did not. And they suffered for it. We as a nation do not. And we suffer for it. But uh, if you're a Christian, and at one point in your Christian walk, you decided to start tithing, and you had not previously, you just decided you were going to do it, and whatever the consequences were, you were going to honor God, and you saw your money turn around, and things got better, would you raise your hand? Okay, good. Well, probably two-thirds of the room or so put up their hand. At least half. I've seen it time and time again. It's the craziest thing. All right, so put God first, principle number one. Principle number two, help the poor. There's a lot of great charities out there. But that principle, charity begins at home, is true. God wants us to help the poor in our own family before we consider the poor in anybody else's family. Here's how he says it through 1 Timothy 5, 8. People who don't take care of their relatives, and especially their own families, have given up their faith. They are worse than someone who doesn't have faith in the Lord. As another translation puts it, worse than an infidel. So, we honor God, and we honor the poor. That's what God would have us do. If there's poor people in your family, your parents, your children, they get help first. Then, if you have more money, 
then you go to the next step. We take up a collection once a month here at Book of Life for the poor in our congregation, for those who need help in our congregation. Now, if you help your family, or your family doesn't need help, then you help Book of Life's family. That's the biblical pattern, you help the body. The Apostle Paul mentioned several times in the New Testament how he went through all of Asia, modern-day Turkey, collecting money for the saints in Jerusalem. You help your family first, then you help the spiritual family second. And then, if you've got money on top of that, then you send it to the Haiti Relief Fund. Then you send it to the Red Cross. Then you send it to the Gospel Rescue Mission. Three steps. First your family, then your church, then strangers on the outside. And I have found that those who honor God with their finances often have enough to do all three. Principle number one, put God first. Principle number two, help the poor. Principle number three, be generous. Back to that spiritual math, give more, get more. Doesn't make any sense, but the Bible says it this way. One man gives freely, it gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. The contemporary English version says it this way. Sometimes you can become rich by being generous or poor by being greedy. All right, so how generous should you be? Who knows? That's subjective, isn't it? Let me tell you a story. guy named Mayer, uh, you probably have heard of the last name, Rothschild. He worked, he was a Jewish guy, worked for a rabbi, kind of like a house servant kind of guy. And then he went off married a woman, and opened a little shop. And the shop did well. He was successful. Meanwhile, back at the rabbi's house, his daughter was going to get married. So the guests to the wedding started to arrive. And in those days and in that place, there was this thing called a dowry where the father gave money to the groom as a dowry for the bride. He had 200 gold coins saved up. It was a huge dowry. It was going to be a great marriage from that perspective, financially set. So he goes into the drawer to grab his 200 gold coins, and they're missing. They're gone. And everybody's like, well, where'd the money go? And then they thought, Rothschild, where did he get the money to open that shop? He was just a servant here. I bet you he took the money. And the rabbi said, you know what the Torah says. You don't accuse somebody without proof. Innocent till proven guilty. You need two or three witnesses. Go talk to him. Come on, what if he didn't do it? How embarrassed would he be? Go talk to him. The guests have come. We're not going to have a wedding. Go. The rabbi said, okay. So he goes on his little journey to the next village over, wherever Rothschild was. True story. And he says, I'm sorry to bother you. I have a very embarrassing question to ask you. But we're between a rock and a hard place, and my family insisted I come and talk to you. I had 200 gold coins for the dowry for my daughter. The guests have arrived. The wedding's in a couple of days. It's missing. You wouldn't happen to know what happened to it, would you? And Rothschild just stared at him for like a couple of minutes, saying nothing. And then he said, I took it. I'm sorry. Let me repay you. And he went to the back, gathered 200 gold coins, gave them to the rabbi. Now the rabbi 
dealing with human nature all the time, said, you're, you're more than forgiven. He was very happy to have the money back. Went, had a wonderful wedding celebration. This impoverished Rothschild. He went broke. A couple years pass, and this guy was in a bar bragging about how his girlfriend, who worked for the rabbi, had stolen 200 gold coins from him. And when word got back to the family, the police were summoned, and they both confessed. So the rabbi went back to Rothschild and said, why did you lie about stealing the money? And he said, well, when you came and asked me about it, and I knew the wedding was set, I just thought how sad your whole family is and how devastated your daughter will be the wedding doesn't go forward and the shame you would have. And I knew if I just offered you the money as a gift, you would never take it. So I told you I stole it. That way you could have a joyful wedding. And the rabbi blessed him. He said, may the Lord prosper you tremendously for your generosity and kind heart. So I went to Wikipedia and I got this from there about the Rothschild family. During the 1800s, when it was at its height, the family is believed to have possessed by far the largest private fortune in the world, as well as by far the largest fortune in modern world history. Let me quote to you again the word of God. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. It's God's math. You give more, you get more. And the other part says, but another withholds unduly and he comes to poverty. So people often ask me, Steve, how much money should I give? They want an actual number. I can't give you a number. You know, give like a Rothschild. There is a verse in the New Testament that talks about giving to the poor. And most people think this verse is about tithing. It's not. This verse is about giving to the poor. Let me read it to you. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So how much should you give? As much as you want. Don't feel like you have to give a certain amount. If your heart goes out to a poor person, bless them. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I would, of course, encourage you to always grow in graciousness and godliness and be a more and more giving person as you mature in God, but I can't tell you how much to give. And so once a month, we remind you during communion, please drop something in the box for the needy in our congregation. And then whatever comes in, when people come to us, we help them with it. I will tell you that their need is always, always greater than the amount And yet, we always seem to have enough to help with the greatest needs. So God is working, but there's still incentive for us to do more, is what I'm trying to say. Well, that's great, Steve. So I I, I give what I want to, to the poor people, but you said, put God first. How much should I give him? I don't know. Am I supposed to tithe, Steve? I don't know. That's not as easy a question or answer as you might think. I do know this, tithing is the only biblical model. And in the Old Testament, under the laws of Moses, it was commanded that the Jewish people had to tithe. 
but we don't have a Levitical priesthood. We don't have a temple to support. We're not under the law of Moses. So are we supposed to tithe? I don't know. I know before there was a law of Moses, when Abraham wanted to honor God, he tithed to Melchizedek. So that's why I say there was a biblical pattern. And the patriarchs, every time they wanted to honor God before the law of Moses was given, they tithed. Now, a lot of churches say you must tithe. I don't think the Bible says you must tithe. I don't think it's that simple. But it is the biblical pattern. So, you want to figure on how much you should give? Start at 100% and work your way down. I don't know. I, I just don't know. I do believe, though, that if you love God and honor God, that you will grow in the amount you're willing to honor him with. Principle number one, put God first. Principle number two, help the poor. Principle number three, be generous. Principle number four, don't love money. For the love of money is a source of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. Some have been so eager to have it that they've wandered away from the faith and have broken their hearts with many sorrows. Please understand, there is nothing wrong with money. May God prosper and bless each one of you with bucket loads of it. Money is not a bad thing. It doesn't say money is a bad thing. It says the love of money is a bad thing. You know, nowhere in the Bible does it say you can love people too much. So back off, you're doing too much love there. And nowhere in the Bible does it say you can love God too much. Ho, ho, that, that's enough praying, man. You're too excited. But it does say you can love money too much. All right, so money is not up there with people and God. And so we shouldn't treat it like that. But we do, don't we? I mean, we go after it with a passion. Now, we need to work. God made living that way. You got to work, you got to eat. But I think we're a little more into it than that. And there's the warning. You got to be careful. Money's like a drug, you know? But unlike a drug, you got to have some money. You don't got to have some drug. But it's addicting. We kind of like money. Kind of like what it can do for us. Money's kind of cool. And then we start to go after it. And we start to make our choices based on how much of it we can get. Like, oh yeah, that's a second job. It's a better job. But it'll make me work on Sundays. Ah, God will understand. It's a promotion. Well, sure he'll understand you're choosing your job over him. No worries. Oh, Steve, come on, man. Don't make me feel bad. I'm just trying to help with perspective. Money's good, but be careful. Don't put it first in your life. There's a guy named William Post. In 1988, he won over $16 million in the lottery. All right? So, all the news. His landlady finds out he won, but somehow, I guess, she was, you know, they had a, this deal about lotteries. So she sued him. And she won a third of the proceeds. Now his family started coming to him and saying, hey man, let's, let's use your money smart. Let's open up some businesses. Give me some money. I'll open a used car lot for you. Go ahead. So he'll say, let's open a, a restaurant. Go ahead. We'll open up a restaurant. And all the businesses failed. His brother and his brother's wife decided to kill him and his wife so that they could get the inheritance. Of course, that didn't work out. 
Buddy had his sixth divorce, and his wife got $40,000 a year in alimony. And by the time eight years had passed, Buddy went from a multimillionaire to $500,000 in debt and filed bankruptcy. This is not an unusual story because I've done some reading. Oftentimes, people who win the lottery go broke within a few years. Is that like the craziest thing you've ever heard or what? Kind of like I told you at the start of the lesson, when people don't handle their finances right, it doesn't matter how much they have. It goes away. Listen to what the Bible says. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Don't even consider it. Do you want to look at something that isn't even there? For wealth will definitely make itself wings like an eagle and fly off to the sky. You can't hold on to wealth. Here's how the typical millionaire story goes. You've heard this saying, rags to riches? That's simplified version. It's rags to riches to rags. To riches to rags. To riches to rags to riches. That's how the typical story goes. Something like this. Yeah, at 25 he made his first million. Lost it at 27 and lived in his car for two years. Homeless. When he made his next million. Started a huge Fortune 500 company that went belly up. Was imprisoned. Lost his fortune. Got out. Made a fortune. People don't know how to hold on to money. I know some people. I know a guy. He's extremely wealthy. I mean, extremely wealthy. He makes wealthy people look poor. And he doesn't know what to do with his money. What I mean by that is, where do you invest it? Where do you put all that money? Let's say you had a billion dollars right now. I wrote you out a check. What would you do with it? Put it in a mattress under your bed? Your house will catch on fire. And all the money's gone. Oh, no, Steve, I put it in the bank. Yeah, well, the bank will insure your money up to $100,000, which basically means the rest of it's gone. Could be. You don't know. So where are you going to put it? You see what I'm saying? Money's hard to hold on to. Oh, you've got a billion dollars. I'm going to kill you. Steal it. Money's hard to hold on to. And inflation is a crazy thing. Even if you put your money in a bank, it'll be losing interest. While it's making pennies on the dollar, the economy's going up dollars on the dollar. So you decide to invest in a company. Company goes bank belly up. Money's hard to hold on to. I'm not telling you a theory. I'm telling you a fact. This is history, and this is what the Bible says. It's kind of like this. I need a volunteer. Andrew, would you volunteer? Come on up here, please. I'm sorry to embarrass you. I won't tell anybody you're my son, though. That way <laughs> there won't be any embarrassment. Would you come stand over here, please? All right. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to fill my hands with water. It says, um, don't even consider it. We want to look at something that isn't even there. And in other passages of Scripture, it makes it like smoke. It just flies away. Well, let's say you wanted to hold on to money like I want to hold on to this water. Now, I'm pretty good at holding water. I'm actually skilled at it. Thank you. Because when I was young, I spent a lot of time in the swimming pool. And I used to practice holding water to see if I could keep it from leaking out of my hands and squirted at people. I used to be able to squirt it like 30 feet. Let's see if I can do it any better. But I realized I needed a tight seal to, to be able to squirt it. But I'm out of practice now. Ah, that's no good. Let's try again. 
Ah, here, let's try this one. I used to be, no, that's all gone now. I used to be able to go like this, hold it straight up, and squirt it like that. Sorry, Steve. <laughs> uh, for those of you visiting, the first three rows are our splash zone. So uh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. The thing is, you know, I'm pretty skilled at holding water. I actually practiced at it and used to be able to keep it in my hands for a couple minutes. But even skilled water man can't hold water very long. And money man can't hold money very long. So imagine if I was going to take a trip across the desert. It'd be real foolish of me to do it this way. I'd want something a wee bit more reliable. Thing is, there is no reliable system for holding money. None at all. And let's say you could come up with one. What good's it going to do you? What I mean by that is, and I would appreciate your prayers, Michaela and I are heading off to Texas right after services. Got a nine-hour drive to Midland, Odessa, one of the most beautiful drives in the world. <laughs> I'm taking Michaela for the entertainment value. <laughs> it's a nine-hour drive. And went to the rental car place, and they said, what kind of car do you want? I said, comfortable with good gas mileage, in that order. So they said, here, try these out. So I sat in a car, and I was like, oh, nope, next. Sat in the next car, and I said, this one's okay. Let me try another one, because I'm going to be on my butt for nine hours, like this. You know, what I ought to do is pimp out my ride. You know that word? Just make my car everything I want it to be. So what I should do is line the seats with mink with a foam backing. Oh, yeah. And tilt my seat like this so I can actually drive like this with my feet up. So I'm kind of like, yeah. And I'll put a monitor with cameras so I don't really need to look out the windshield. I just look kind of up, and then I can see where I'm going. And one of the problems with that trip is, you know, rest stop, next rest stop, 75 miles. I had to pee 75 miles ago. I can't make it to the next rest stop. What do I do? There's no bushes in Texas. <laughs> you're, you're, so I'm going to put a toilet in my car. And a refrigerator. Duh. And this project would cost me, I don't know, about $50,000 if I did it on the cheap. But if you can't have a comfortable car, what's the point, right? And you would all say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. What a waste of money. Well, why? Why is it a waste of money? Because you're only renting the car. You're only going to have it for a few days. Well, how long are you going to have your money? I thought we were just passing through this place. We're renters here. And we have no idea how long we're going to be here. So if you think that's foolish, principle number one, put God first. Principle number two, help the poor. Principle number three, be generous. Principle number four, don't love money. 
Principle number five comes from the great scholar of biblical notoriety, William Shakespeare. And I quote, Neither a borrower nor a lender be, for loan oft loses both itself and friend, and borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. Loan oft loses itself and friend. So your friend borrows some money, they can't pay you back, you've lost both. That's why he says don't lend. And on the borrower side, he says it dulls the edge of husbandry. You know, if you get money for free, why work? <laughs> There's a lot of guys... Now, I'm not saying all the people out there asking you for money are this way. There are some truly hard cases out there, and people have needs. But I saw a John Stossel show where he talked to a whole bunch of people who just, they prefer to beg than work. It was just that simple. Working's hard. Why do it? You've got to show up at work every day. It's grueling. I can stand out here, and people give me money. Dude, I wish that guy wore a sign. I'm bum. On purpose. Don't like work. Give me money but they don't. So borrowing dulls the edge of husbandry. John Stossel's point was everybody giving those guys money was hurting them, keeping them from working for a living. It was quite a compelling television show. Steve, is your sixth principle really based on Shakespeare? <laughs> no, Shakespeare's concepts were biblical in that quote. Let me read to you a couple of verses. I'll show you. Uh, Shakespeare was not biblically illiterate. In fact, some people think he actually helped translate the Bible. The Bible reads beautifully in the King James Version. And so some people think parts of it were actually influenced by Shakespeare himself. Well, Proverbs 22.7 says this, The wealthy rule over the poor, and anyone who borrows is a slave to the lender. So the Bible encourages you not to borrow money because you become a slave to the lender. The wealthy rule over the poor and anyone who borrows is a slave to the lender. So if at all possible, never become a borrower. Sometimes we get into pinches, we don't know a way out, but understand that pinch might make you a slave. So do whatever you can never to be a borrower. What about a lender? Well, being a slave sucks, but how about a slave owner? Not so bad. There are actually some instances in the scripture in the Old Testament where God tells the Israelites whom they could lend to and the table, as it were. Interest, not interest, how long, this, that, and the next thing. But in the New Testament, it doesn't say anything but this. And if you lend only to those from whom you hope to get it back, why should you receive a blessing? For sinners lend to sinners to get the same amount. No, love your enemies and good do, good do, to, do good to them. Lend and expect nothing back. You will then have a great reward, and you will be children of the Most High God, for he is good to the ungrateful and the wicked. So here's how, when I put it all together in my mind, this is what I think the Bible is teaching us about borrowing. Don't do it unless you're desperate, and even then try not to. Lending, don't do it. If somebody's in need, give them the money. It's that simple. You know, Jose comes up to me and says, Steve, man, I had a bad month. I can't pay my phone bill. Can I borrow 25 bucks? No, brother, you cannot. I'll give you 25 bucks, but I won't lend you 25 bucks. No, no, I'll pay you back. Then you can't have it. 
I don't give loans to friends. I give money if I have it. Hey, Steve, I'm sorry, man. I had a bad month. I can't pay my mortgage. Can you give me a lend me a thousand bucks? Sorry, brother. I don't have a thousand bucks. Oh, it's just a loan. Sorry, man. Can't do it. I think if you got enough to give it, then give it. And if you don't, say you're sorry. But don't put yourself in a position where you're taking from your mortgage next month to help your buddy in his mortgage. When he doesn't pay you back, you've lost the loan and your friend. If you got it, give it. If you don't, apologize and pray for him and just move on. Put God first. Help the poor. Be generous. Don't love money. Neither a borrower nor a lender be. Number six, invest in God's kingdom. I already told you, you can't put it under a mattress. You can't put it in a bank. And I know one of the wealthiest guys you'll ever meet doesn't know what to do with his money in this economy. Nothing's making money. Everything's losing money. So what do you invest in? Oh, and I told you about my rental car, too. It was foolish to invest in that rental car because it was just going away. And the parallel, of course, was it's foolish to invest in anything in this world because you're going away, too. And it could be soon or it can be late. Even if you made it to 115 years, which I think is the current record for an American's long life, then what? You've got the rest of forever to spend in heaven or the other place. And that money's not going to do you any good. So invest in God's kingdom. I know most of you have heard this, but I love it, so I'm going to tell it. Anyway, even if you've heard it 30 times, this really wealthy guy died. And he's standing at the pearly gates, and he's got a suitcase in his hand. And Peter says, you can't come in here with anything. Naked I've gone into, and he quotes the Bible verses, naked from to dust, dust, ash, ash. You can't come in here with anything. And the guy said, listen, this is heaven, right? Of course it's heaven. And we can have everything we want in heaven that's, that's, that's good and moral and noble, right? Peter said, of course, this is heaven. He said, I spent my entire life on earth amassing a huge fortune, and I just don't want to leave it behind. He said, the guy said, haven't you ever heard the saying, you can't take it with you? He said, yeah, I've heard it. Well, what's in the suitcase? And the guy cracks it open, lined with gold bars, and Peter started laughing. And the guy said, what's so funny? He said, do you want to come into heaven with paving stones? <laughs> Why invest here? It's not worth much and it won't last long. We need to invest there. Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do we invest in heaven? How do we send it ahead? And what is it we're sending? Obviously, it's not money. It's some sort of super spiritual credit account, and you're building credit, not taking credit. And how do you do that? Well, it's a funny thing. I imagine what Rothschild's account would have been, assuming he gave his life to Christ and went to heaven, based on the story I shared with you. I wonder what those 200 gold coins translated into up in heaven's bank account. Can you imagine? Or how about that widow that Jesus pointed out who threw in one mite and he said she put in more than anybody else because they gave in a fraction of what they owned and she gave in 100% of what she owned. Her account in heaven would have been bigger than the account 
Now, I'm talking about money. Let's stop talking about money. Let's talk about the lady who works in the nursery and has at Book of Life for the last six years and gives up being in here, though she wants to be in here, to be in there to watch your children. treasures in heaven. And there's some women who do that and some guys who do that, take care of the kids. and the, They don't have children of their own. They're just doing it out of love to serve God and to serve this church. The bank account in heaven is huge. Oh, they may not have a car with mink seats. They might be barely getting by in a busted down Camaro. But their account in heaven is huge because they've invested in people and in God and not in things. Brings us to principle number seven, our last one for this morning. Probably the second hardest one to do. The hardest is to put God first. Most people just can't do it. And the second hardest is this one. Don't stress over money. Trust God. By the way, this principle, don't stress over money, trust God, only applies if you've already been applying one through six. If you're not applying one through six, you've got reason to stress. You're putting money into pockets with holes in it. You don't have a good strategy to handle your money. You're going to have unending problems like the people in the book of Haggai did. So what you need to do so you don't stress over money, go through numbers one through six, rearrange your priorities, and then trust God. He'll take care of you. Jesus told his disciples, and I quote, So do not worry saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. All right, put it all together. In the book of Haggai, God told Israel five times, consider your ways. Those are three of the most powerful words in all the Bible. You know, if the doctor tells you, you better watch how you eat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Your wife tells you, you better watch how you eat. Yes, honey, I know, I know. But God tells you, watch your step. You better pay attention. Because he's the one who definitely knows what he's talking about. And to ignore him is to invite peril. He told the ancient Israelites five times, consider what you're doing. Consider your ways. And the first time he told them, tied to their relationship with him, and the building of the temple, and the financial consequences of them not honoring God. And here we are, 21st century America, the richest country the world has ever known on the brink of bankruptcy. How can that be? Because it's human math we're working with, and not God's math. So, we must consider our ways, our circumstances, not just as a nation, but as individuals. Our circumstances often reflect our decisions. And this is especially true with finances. As it comes to your decisions and your finances, consider your ways. And may the Lord bless you abundantly. And may he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
and grant you his peace.